hand, we can say amen to that. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. I made mention on, I think it was this past Lord's Day, that uh, after I finished reading the 40-day Bible reading schedule, I have been taking the time to actually go back through the Psalms and I've done it in different ways and in different fashions. Uh, one time I just went through the Psalms and I had a little book that I was reading in conjunction with it to try to give an understanding. And then in getting an understanding, I would actually pray portions or sometimes even the whole Psalm to the Lord, making application to myself or today or the church or whatever whatever application I had there. Well, this past time I decided I was going to go back through the Psalms again. It's been a rich, rich study, and this time I have picked up a book by James Hamilton. He's a contemporary writer. He's a professor, I think, at uh, Southern Seminary, and he has written a uh, two-volume commentary. You can actually get it in one volume, I think but a two-volume commentary on the Psalms. And as I was going through there, I was reminded of our study in Psalm 1. Believe it or not, that was in 2017. So about five years ago, six years ago, we actually went through Psalm 1. That's actually up on Sermon Audio if you're interested in getting uh, instruction from that. I think we did it on a Wednesday night. And as I was reading through this and recapturing many of those truths and reading um, James Hamilton's commentary on it, I was struck by uh, his statement, which I had also mentioned in 2017, that... Psalms 1 and 2 are introductory psalms to the whole Psalter. In other words, our Psalter, 150 psalms, is made up of five books. And in some translations, they actually will note where those books are. Book 1, book 2, book 3, book 4. But in our Bibles, it's all one, the book of Psalms. And... I had made mention that in 2017 that these two psalms were introductory. And you'll notice at the end of Psalm 1, it says, For the Lord knows, now note this, the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So what we come to understand here is that as far as introductory to the book of Psalms, he's going to be talking about how many ways. There's just two ways. There is the path or the way of the righteous. And there is the path or the way of the wicked. And I think that if you'll recall to mind, you're reading down through the Psalms, you can readily see that as you read. David is, in many cases, of course there's other uh, writers, uh, Asaph and others in the book of Psalms, but they're all talking about two groups of people. They're talking about the wicked. And they're talking about who? The righteous. 
all throughout the rest of the Psalms here. Well, we also noted in 2017 that in Psalm 1, there is this man, verse 2, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And this is in contrast to verse 1 of Psalm 1. So the blessed man isn't just merely the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of the scoffers. The blessed man is whose delight, this is the heart, right? Whose delight is in the law of the Lord and in that law his mind is continually what? Meditating on that law. He is pondering it. He's asking questions about it. He's praying over it. He's seeking to understand. It's forming his inner man, and forming his inner man, it governs his walk. Everybody see that? Okay. Most of the time in the preaching that I've heard on Psalm 1, they emphasize verse 1, but really the root of the matter is in verse 2. And we noted that there's only been one man who fulfilled perfectly Psalm 1. And that man is who? Christ Jesus the Lord. Did our Lord delight in His Father's Word? And did our Lord meditate on that Word 24-7? He is the Blessed One. Now, here's the thing, is that believers are in Christ. So that characteristic of our Savior will be a growing characteristic in a genuine believer. A genuine believer does want to find his delight in the law of the Lord, and he does begin to grow up in all things by filling his mind and his heart with what God has said so that it governs his steps and his steps are in the way of the righteous. Now what the commentator James Hamilton helped me with is that he showed that there is a correlation between Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Now remember, I said in 2017 that these two psalms formulate the foundation. They're the introductory psalms to all the rest of the psalms, Psalm 3 through 150 in the book of Psalms. But he actually pointed out that there is a correlation between these two psalms. And in fact, Psalm 2 answers some questions that you would walk away with if you only had Psalm 1. And that's what I want us to look at tonight. So I want us to start off by holding your place here in Psalm 1 and 2 and turn to the book of Acts chapter 4. Okay, you've got two hands in your Bible. You're going to have a hand in Psalm 2 and you're going to have a hand in Acts chapter Acts chapter 4. Okay. 
Okay, now I want you to look at Psalm 2, and you know that many of the Psalms have an inscription before verse 1, like verse, uh, Psalm 3 says a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. Does Psalm 2 have an inscription? The answer to that is what? No, there is no inscription before verse 1. Now, in fact, in the Hebrew Bible, verse 1 is actually the inscription, if they have one. But there is no inscription. But we do know some things about this psalm. What do we know? Well, turn to Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, we have the situation of Peter and John being persecuted. The Sanhedrin persecuted them, warned them not to speak in this name. And they go back to the church, verse 23, and they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Now, I can imagine that if that happened today, I think the church would have got together and would have had a prayer meeting, but they would have had a prayer meeting for what? To try to get the persecution to stop. But that's not what this prayer meeting was all about. They actually came together, look at verse 24. When they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, so they were united in this prayer. O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Now note verse 25. Who by the, by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father who? David, your servant, said. And then he's going to quote a section out of Psalm 2. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples who devised futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. And then they make application in verse 27 from this psalm. They say that there have been people in this city who have gathered together against Christ and they have gathered together against us, but this is entirely within your sovereign plan Verse 29, and so now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence or with all boldness. Everybody see that? What do we learn about Psalm 2 from Acts chapter 4? We learn who wrote it. Now go back to Psalm 2. In fact, I've written in my Bible... Acts chapter 4, verse 25, right there with Psalm 2, and I wrote, this is a Psalm of David. Now, we wouldn't have known that with certainty other than the New Testament brings that out to our attention. And folks, I think we can't be certain of what I'm about to say. But I do think we have good reason to think that if Psalm 2 was written by David, Psalm 1 might have been written by who? By David also. 
Now, I wouldn't put under Psalm 1 a Psalm of David. I'm just bringing that out because that would mean that they have common authors, if that's true. But folks, there is similar terminology between Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Did you pick up any of it when you were listening to it being read? Let me show you one. Look at Psalm 1 verse 1. How how what? Blessed. Everybody see that word? Look at the end of Psalm 2. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Everybody see that? So it's like you have two introductory psalms. If we're correct, two introductory psalms, pretty confident about that, possibly written by the same who, by the same author. Now we understand the ultimate author is God, but written by the same author. And it's like it's bookend with blessedness. Hebrews 1, verse 1, blessed. Hebrews 2, verse 12, last phrase, how blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Can everybody see that? There's another thing that is similar between these two psalms. If you look at Psalm 1, verse 1, you have, how blessed is the man who does not, let's say it, who does not walk, in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path or way of sinners. Look in Psalm 2, look at verse 12. Do homage to the Son, that He not become angry, and you perish in in the way. Everybody see that? And folks, we also understand perishing in the way. Look at Psalm 1, verse 6. But the way of the who will perish? Wicked. Everybody see that that similarity there? He's using similar terminology in both of these psalms. Here's another one. This one isn't as up front because we're looking at it from a Hebrew text uh, viewpoint. But in Psalm 1 verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law he does what day and night? Meditates. Everybody see that? means he's thinking on that, right? Continually. Look in Psalm 2 verse 1. And I'm going, to, I'm going to substitute the word here. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples meditating a vain thing? It's the same Hebrew root. So do you have meditation in Psalm 1? And you have meditation in Psalm, in Psalm 2. Everybody see that? I have little lines all over my, my Bible here just pointing these out to me. 
So that way when I go back through and I read my Bible and I come down and I'm going to start reading the book of Psalms, I can just recapture this immediately without having to go to some notes that I've written. It's right there in my Bible. I can see it. I can say, oh, there's a similarity here. These are introductory Psalms. Here's the lines going to the different words here. I would encourage you to do the same thing. Here's another similarity. Look at Psalm 1, verse 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path or the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of who? Scoffers. Everybody see that? All right. Look in Psalm 2, verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Everybody see that? So, are wicked people sitting in the seat of scoffers? Is the Lord sitting? And when He hears their scoffing, He responds righteously. They scoff him, so he what? He scoffs them. You have that similarity there. And I have one more here. Look at Psalm 1 again. Look at verse 1. How blessed is the man, and I'm going to emphasize the words, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners. Look down in Psalm 2, verse 2. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together. Everybody see that? So folks, I I really think that... This brother who has commentated on this really is on to something. That these two psalms are introductory psalms, and we actually came to that determination in 2017, some six years ago. But I do think (coughs) that there are connections between these two psalms that once you understand blessedness, then you understand what he's saying in Psalm 2. When you understand the way or the paths that we're to walk in, the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked, then surely we understand when we see that word used in Psalm 2. And when we think about meditating... And what that means for a righteous man, do wicked people meditate? Yes, they do. Their minds are filled with vanity. They are imagining, they're meditating, they're devising vain things in their minds. Everybody see that? So it's not an issue, I mean really brethren, it's not an issue of, okay, I'm going to start meditating today for five minutes. We're always meditating because we're always thinking. 
The issue is, are we thinking on vain things or righteous things? Are we meditating on the words of God? Or are we meditating the vain things of man? And surely when we see a phrase like seat of scoffers, who wants to be in that seat, right? And then we read that the Lord is sitting. And he is seating in a seat, a throne. And he's responding to the wicked scoffing with scoffing himself. Or when we read in Psalm 1 verse 1, the counsel of the wicked, or standing in the way of sinners, or the path of sinners, and then we see that wicked people are taking their stand and they're taking counsel together. There's no way that those words are not conveying anything other than that these two psalms are connected at the hip. They're intended to teach us something about life. They're intended to teach us something about the rest of this book. Psalms 3 through 150. Now, if you are leaning, or maybe you're persuaded, but if you are leaning to say that these similarities have to be on purpose, because these words are inspired, right? These are God-breathed. Does God pick His words on purpose? He does pick His words on purpose. And the words that He picks are always right. Then perhaps Psalm 2 will answer some of our questions that we leave Psalm 1 as we leave Psalm 1. Let me just ask the question. Look at Psalm 1, verse 1. <coughs> How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. If that's all we had, we might be walking away thinking, well, what counsel of the wicked do I need to be avoiding? What path of sinners should I not be walking down? Where is this seat of scoffing that I am to avoid? Psalm 2 does not leave us hanging on that question. It actually gives us in the first three verses of Psalm 2 exactly what God means when He says, don't walk in this council, don't stand in this pathway, don't sit in this seat. What does He mean by that? Well, I want us to note verse 2. The kings of the earth take their stand... The rulers are take counsel together. Look at Psalm 2 verse 1. They are meditating a vain thing. 
And they are stirred up about this. What are they stirred up about? Psalm 2, verse 2. Against the Lord and against His anointed. Everybody see that? When we're talking about the counsel of the wicked and the path of sinners and the seat of scoffers, we're talking about something that is against the Lord. And it is against His anointed, and you know that that word anointed, the anointed one is referring to the Messiah. It's referring to Jesus Christ our Lord. So whatever this counsel and this path and this seat is, it is anti-God. It is against God. Everybody everybody following me with that? What What are they saying that is a vain thing that they are meditating on, that they are taking a stand and counsel together? What's going on in their heart that I am to avoid? Verse 3. This is what they're saying. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Now note the word there. The word there is referring to Yahweh and His Messiah. Both of them. Let us tear their fetters apart and let us cast away their cords from us. Everybody everybody see that in your Bible. In other words, folks, I I could just let's let's just generalize it this way. They're saying I don't want their restraint in my life. You ever met anybody like that? God says something. Let's just pick one. Thou shalt not murder. Christ said that means you're not to hate your brother. Lost people say, I won't have that type of restraint on me. I mean, if I feel angry, I'm going to feel better if I express it. I'm going to feel better if I, use a southern expression, tell it like it is. I'm not going to have anybody tell me, don't do that. That's what's going on in people's hearts and minds of lost people. And folks, if you just look at our nation, if you look at the world, Every false religion is a gathering of people who's saying to the Lord, we don't want your restraints. We don't want your grace. We don't want your blessing. I'll do it, thank you. I'll save myself. Everyone. 
And folks, you and I have a sinful nature. And there are times where we don't want God telling us what to do either. Now, we don't ultimately want that. We hate it. We hate it. Don't you? You hate it when it rises up within you. Lost people don't respond that way. They just say, I want to do what I want to do. If I want to change my gender, I get to what? I get to do it. Folks, gender is a God-given restraint. (laughs) Is it not? I was born a boy. I didn't ask for it. (laughs) I wasn't even conscious of it. Neither were you with your gender. But if I say to you, well, I don't like being a boy. I have feelings like a girl. I don't know how they know that. So I'm going to do everything I can to be a girl. I'm actually saying, I don't want this restraint in my life. And folks, you can, you can put that down into just about every area of life. The smallest of things or the biggest of things. I remember, of course, I was not a born-again child. I did not get saved until I was 20. But folks, how do you feel? How do you feel if someone looks at you in your eye and says, don't do that. Isn't there something, there's something inside of you that automatically just immediately, you don't say it, hopefully it doesn't have a grip on you, but there's something that rises up within you that says, we'll see about that. I'll get away with what I want to do another way. But I'm going to do what I want to what? I want to do. I'm going to cast that fetter. I'm going to cast those cords off of me. You can apply it all the way down the line. Attending services, praying, reading your Bible, meditating. And folks, it will be a joyful day one day when this body of death is shed off of me. So folks, when we're talking about don't walk in the counsel, what is the vain thing that lost people are thinking? How do I remove God's restraints of my life? Don't walk in that counsel. When someone suggests to you to do that, don't say, hey, that sounds great. Years ago, I was counseling a man man was older than I was. And we were talking about a particular issue. And the man looked at me and said, 
This man was said that he was a believer, but he wasn't. This man looked at me and said, I understand what you're saying. And that is what the Bible says. But I'm going to do this. Folks, that's a vain thing. That is emptiness. Don't walk in counsel like that and don't stand in the way of sinful people who are walking like that. And certainly don't get to a place where you sit in the seat with people who are scoffing at people who love to have God's restraints on them. Folks, God's restraints on us is freedom. So folks, do we, does Psalm 2 help us understand what Psalm 1 is talking about? It does. Does Psalm 2 help us understand who this blessed man is? Well, <clears throat> verse 6 of Psalm 2 says, <clears throat> But as for me, I've installed my king. This is God's chosen king. My king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my who? Son. Today I have begotten you. Asked of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Now folks, let me ask you that. Is that not prosperity? If you've been given the very ends of the earth, in fact, the whole universe, as your possession, and you've been given nations of people to serve the Son, who is the King, has He not prospered? He has prospered. This man whose delight is in the law of Yahweh and in Yahweh's law he meditates day and night is none other than God's own Son in human flesh. And folks, what a gift that is. Now I'm going to wrap this up this way. If you look at Psalm 2, it starts out by making a declaration of what the world is doing. Why are the nations, regardless of ethnicity, why are the nations in uproar and the peoples meditating a vain thing? The kings of the earth, governments are taking this position. The kings of the earth take their stand and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. In verses 4 and following, we hear God's response to this. This is Yahweh's response to this. 
And one of the things I noted here is very fascinating to me, and I hope to do more study in this. But look at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them. That is verses 1 through 3. He will speak to them in his anger. Everybody see that? And he will terrify them in his fury. Now folks, what did God say in His anger? And what is God saying that terrifies lost people? What is it? Verse 6. I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Folks, that terrifies lost people. He said, I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. Now we have the son speaking. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So you ask to me and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance. The very nations that are in uproar, there's going to be people out of every tongue, tribe, and nation that are going to serve him. They're going to walk in the way of the righteous. And in verse 9, the Son, who is the King, will break them with a rod of iron, and you will shatter them like earthenware. I don't know if I'll do this, but I'll just describe it. I was going to bring a little pot here, and we were all going to go on the back porch, and I was going to take that pot and just go, just so you can see. It shatters. you do realize that human beings are earthenware. Do you not? Are we not clay? He's going to shatter them. Like you would would go out and take a pot and you would shatter it. He's going to shatter people like this. Folks, that terrifies the world. That's why people get mad at you when you talk to them about Christ. Now, what would you think, since God's talked about two ways, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked, what would you think, coming out of Psalm 1 into Psalm 2, what would you think God's advice would be to the world? Verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. In other words, kings of the earth, it's time for you to show wisdom. This is wisdom. And all you judges of the earth who are seeking to cast off the restraints of God, all you judges of the earth, you better take warning. In other words, folks, he's telling them You need to become the blessed man. You need to come to the place where your delight is not in casting off God's restraints, but in voluntarily taking His yoke upon you because His yoke is easy and His burden is 
life. The way of the transgressor is hard. You need to show wisdom by doing that. And Psalm 2 verse 11, you need to bow your knee to the Lord. You need to worship the Lord with reverence and what? With trembling. Ah, you mean when we delight in the law of the Lord, there's a certain trembling associated with that? And you know that's true. God dwells with the humble and contrite heart. Verse 12, you better do homage to the Son. That's God's chosen King. Because if He becomes angry, you will perish in the way. And that's exactly what Psalm 1 verse 6 says. The way of the wicked will what? Will perish. Folks, they will be like chaff, dried up earthenware that the wind drives away. They won't stand in the judgment. They won't be in the assembly of the righteous. You need to bow your knee. And folks, doesn't the Scripture say, every knee will what? And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now look at verse 12 of Psalm 2 again. When will God's wrath be kindled? Soon. And folks, it was soon in David's day. How soon is it today? And then he concludes, he bookends this. How blessed are all who take refuge in the Son of God. What a gift that is. And folks, I don't think all these things are coincidences. I don't think the terminology is a coincidence. I don't think these two Psalms coming together are a coincidence. I think God has done this so that we would have a proper understanding and the proper foundation on how to read the rest of the Psalms and how to apply them in our lives. Let's go to Him in prayer.